This is Macro Horizons, Episode 10, Policy Limbo, Outdoving the Doves, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill of the Inglewood Hills and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of March 18th and a friendly reminder that not all podcast titles are A-plus material. After all, there is a grading curve for a reason. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. So, Ian, how have the past several sessions informed how it is you're thinking about the market at this point? In the week just past, we did learn a great deal of new information that has guided trading in the treasury market, but it wasn't really domestic as much as it was some of the overseas events. Obviously, there's a fair amount of ongoing political uncertainty, whether that is in Europe or even domestically. But more importantly, the data in the U.S. continues to show the type of struggles that we were expecting to characterize the beginning of 2019. First up was the disappointing CPI print. Across the board, definitely came in lower than expectations. The caveat here that I'll offer is that within the shelter component, we still continue to see reasonable strength in owner's equivalent rent, which has been the one final pillar supporting the overall core inflation complex. Now, eventually we do expect that there will be downward pressure in that series. However, even without a mean reversion, let's call it closer to 0.2 month over month on a consistent basis for OER, we are still going to find ourselves looking to other components within the inflation series to really drive expectations. Now, that certainly presents a problem for the Fed as they attempt to craft a message that the Fed is going to be on hold for the time being without convincing the market that the next rate move is necessarily going to be a cut. We still expect that there will be a period of policy uncertainty in which the Fed retains hope that they will be able to deliver a rate hike in December of this year. Although at the end of the day, we don't expect that that will materialize. In terms of supply, the three auctions that we have recently seen have received relatively strong takedowns. We saw a modest tail for threes and thirties, but 10 years stopped through rather solidly, and they did that at the highs of the day. That's particularly telling given that the 10-year sector in the U.S. is what we affectionately call the benchmark of all benchmarks in the rate space. There's been very little to really challenge the idea that the U.S. is poised for a more significant slowdown, although we will caution we're still relatively early in the data cycle for the year. 
Nonetheless, the lower end of the trading range in terms of yields has been challenged and is in the process of being redefined. Intuitively, that makes sense as some of the optimism that might have been held onto at the beginning of the year has started to be priced out of the market in terms of near-term upside risks for rates. In addition, the twos tens curve has been pushed as low as 14.2 basis points, well within striking distance of that nine basis point cycle flat. We continue to think that there will be a period perhaps what we're engaged in at this moment, in which there is downward pressure on the curve as more flattening is priced in. The open question there is whether or not we see the curve actually invert, or if we simply push through nine basis points into the low single digits. We maintain the next big move is going to be the cyclical re-steepening of the curve, Clearly, the next 75 basis points in twos tens will be steeper, not flatter, although the progress toward that point will be choppy at best, and we continue to retain our slight flattening bias. A holding pattern in 10-year yields ahead of the Fed meeting seems the path of least resistance, although we'll nonetheless be watching the 2019 yield low in tens at 254 as a potential target. In terms of very, very, very long waits, we're reminded of the four hours that we recently spent in the Eurostar customs line in Paris. Thanks for that, Brexit. Recorded live, kind of, from BMO Capital Markets. Today, our conversation is going to start out with a discussion on the maturity wall. So given that intro, Ben, uh, how would you define the maturity wall? So what we're seeing now is a level of high yield debt that needs to be refinanced that's reached the highest level since 2010. So that has some interesting implications for financial conditions going forward and what has historically coincided with big moves in high yield credit spreads. Stepping aside from the conversation about the two of you trying to define maturity in any way, let's talk a bit about the corporate bond market. There's a lot of interesting late cycle dynamics that we have seen play out over the course of the last two years. There's been a lot of conversations about fallen angels within the credit spectrum, i.e. firms that used to be rated well into the investment grade category slipping below to junk bond status. While historically, most significant sell-offs in the equity market have been preceded by a spike in high-yield credit. My assumption is this cycle might be somewhat different. Dare I say it's different this time? Frankly, that's one of my least favorite phrases. However, the biggest risk at this moment isn't necessarily a blowout in credit spreads as some of the lower-rated investment grade slip into high-yield, but rather how companies choose to maintain access to the markets. There's an argument that we might see contagion from higher spreads in the junk bond market leading to investment grade, but I'll make the opposite argument. I suspect that some of the big issuers to maintain access to credit markets will actually undergo some significant balance sheet enhancing activities. Selling off assets is an obvious one. The rationalization of a workforce is another one, which is, again, very typical late cycle dynamic. But as it relates to this specific wall of maturities, my bigger concern isn't necessarily the amount of money that needs to be financed in high yield space, but rather 
the Treasury issuance that we have seen over the course of the last couple of years has already created a certain degree of crowding out that has led to the rationalization of credit spreads overall. What do you think, John? So one of the things that's always important with these types of questions is to try to put this in the context of the bigger macro picture. And uh, one of, I guess, the encouraging developments, at least in this dimension that's occurred in the past couple of months, is the Fed's pause will have helped tighten spreads and ease financial conditions. That should make some of this process easier, but also the decision to stop balance sheet roll-off. And that'll happen in two ways. Is one, the market is a little bit less concerned that it's going to run off forever. But what that really translates to, to your point, is less treasury issuance going forward. So a little bit less of a crowding out factor than they had previously should help. That being said, the corporate bond market has gotten significantly bigger. You're starting to see serious covenant light issuance. And in reality, a lot of the corporate sector has kind of levered up a little bit more which arguably may or may not make sense in the context of lower rates for longer. The counter-argument that I would offer there is the bulk of the reduction in Treasury issuance that results from the end of the balance sheet unwind is presumably going to come in the bill sector in the very front end, whereas the average maturity of the junk bond market tends to be significantly longer. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So it would have more of an impact on, call it funding spreads or three-month LIBOR than it might have further out the curve. So the takeaway being that it is a risk that's on the horizon, making funding costs more expensive. The macro implications are less obvious outside of simply the basics of higher borrowing costs, in part because of the Fed, in part because of the amount of refinancing that needs to be done, will ultimately weigh as another constraint on profitability. Again, putting downward pressure on profits leads to layoffs, undermines the employment market, and eventually flows through to consumer confidence and the pace of consumption. I'd also say that it's probably a good thing that the maturity wall is occurring in 2019 and not 2020, 2021. If this was happening in a serious contractionary period, it would be a lot more concerning. And the fact of the timing of it, I think, as well is important because it's going to be telling if the Fed has pushed pause soon enough that the impact of this and the refinancing needs and the market's willingness to digest lower rated credits is not going to be as big of an issue as it otherwise would have been. Said differently, if the Fed has in fact been able to orchestrate a soft landing, then some of the classic dislocations in credit markets will be muted during this cycle. That's a pretty big if the Fed's been able to achieve a soft landing. Do you think that's a realistic possibility? They've struggled with this in the past. Well, historically, central banks globally have been chasing soft landings, and very, very rarely do they end up catching them. I would say, if anything, I would skew the odds in the favor of history in this particular episode of monetary policy. But I was nonetheless impressed with how quickly Powell was able to shift from what was perceived as a very hawkish monetary policy stance to one that was far more clearly defined as dovish at the beginning of January. So I'd agree with you that a soft landing looks unlikely, if only from historical context. What's a hard landing going to look like? And how do you kind of see some of the policy reaction function play out at that point? So my base case scenario is that what we see 
in Germany starts to play out in the U.S., a very mild recession, call it the end of 2019, the beginning of 2020, in which we see a consumer-led slowdown, the Fed needs to react to that. The way that the Fed reacts to that, I think, will be very important. They will do one of two things. One is they will cut rates, which is my baseline assumption. At that point, we will already have ended the balance sheet unwind. There's an argument, and it's a pretty good one, that they will instead shift to a price targeting regime or an average inflation target. If that were to occur, that's actually where you get a significantly steeper curve where 10-year yields sustainably trade above 325. I suspect that instead of that, what we'll see is a easing campaign, but it's not an easing campaign down to zero. It's somewhere below 100 basis points, above 50, because the Fed struggled with getting monetary policy off of that zero bound. In thinking about what the next easing campaign is going to look like, I think we and others often look at what the market is pricing, so to speak, in terms of the chance of a next hike or the chance of cut, what have you. But historically, the Fed has cut rates by more than they've hiked them, and 25 basis points being the obvious example in this cycle. So how do you kind of skew that probability calculation going forward based on your assumptions about what a rate cut might look like? Yeah, so that's a fair question. And it gets into some of, say, the forward math, right? So say you think of the end of 2020. There's some probability they pull off one more hike. They're 25 bips higher. And there's some probability they cut by 100 basis points, just to throw out a number. Now, the way the math works out, even if you have an 80% probability that you're one hike higher... That actually leads to just flat pricing because of the asymmetric nature of it. And I think some people kind of skew this. And this could be one of the supporting reasons for why we continue to see some type of inversion further out the curve, even if rate cuts aren't necessarily called a base case scenario. Well, this is also complicated at this particular point in monetary policy history by John's two new favorite acronyms, the YCC and the MMT. Ben, do you have any thoughts on the uh, YCC, for example? And for those without John Hill's affinity for acronyms, that stands for yield curve control, the most notable example of which probably was carried out by the Bank of Japan. Yeah. And the way that I think about yield curve control is that there are kind of two ways to do quantitative easing. One is either you set a certain quantity that you're going to buy, and then you're flexible on the price, i.e., the Fed comes in and buys $40 billion of treasuries a month at whatever price they can, and that influences aggregate market prices. Or you set a fixed price and then are flexible on the quantity. The problem with that, though, is it's a function of the liquidity of the market. And the reality is benchmark treasuries are significantly more liquid than benchmark JGBs. And I don't know that the Fed could credibly commit to buying a semi-unlimited amount of treasuries without, you know, borderline breaking the market in order to get prices somewhere. To be fair, though, John, the Treasury Department seems more than happy to continue making more treasuries for the Fed. That said, I'd argue that it really comes down to an issue of credibility. Take, for example, the way that the Fed funds futures market functions and the way in which the Fed commits to a level. Very rarely, do we need to see significant intervention on either side to maintain the desired level? But rather, it's just the idea that if and when the Fed needs to step up, they will be there and they will be able to do it in size. And to that point, 
that actually occurred in Japan. It's just the threat or the credible commitment of those purchases that's able to achieve a similar outcome on pricing, which is what really matters. And is that why you think you've seen Fed speakers like Williams and Clarita kind of really pretty explicitly introduce this idea to the market? So I think what's really going on, the idea of doing yield curve control would be difficult for the Fed. I think instead what's really happening is the FOMC and staff economists are having a step back. Okay, how do we want to respond to the next potential downturn? And Japan has led the way on a variety of different topics from quantitative easing, which is literally a Japanese phrase poorly translated, to a variety of other things. So they are looking at yield curve control as one option, but there are a variety of other things that they could implement as well, whether it be price level targeting, whether it be adjustments to forward guidance, whether it be a whole host of different things. So it's more a component of a broader step back, and it's a real option that's theoretically out there, something similar to call it negative interest rate policy. Doesn't mean it'll happen. But yes, it's a live possibility. That seems to be a bit further afield, not necessarily this week's trading business. So let's talk a little bit about what we're expecting from the Fed at the March meeting, in particular, the beloved dot plot. So there are two parts of the dots that I guess I'll be most focused on, the 2019 dot and the long dot. So to start with the 2019 dot, the huge question is going to be, does the median FOMC member still see a hike in 2019? Given the extent of the dovish pause, given the removal of any explicit statement guidance to that effect, it's certainly possible that that could catch the market a little by surprise. If after all the evolution that we've seen since the December meeting, there's still a base case for a hike in 2019 not reflected in market pricing, that could lead to a little bit of bearish sentiment. So that's something to watch in the front end, or perhaps the median member has come out completely and it's moved to as steady as she goes. I think that this is one of those moments in which what is priced in to the Fed Fund's futures market for the reasons that you articulated, John, might not fully reflect what the actual consensus is. My impression from client interactions is while most people expect that 240 is likely to be the end of the tightening campaign, they're less convinced that the Fed truly believes that. And given, with the exception of 2018, the strong tendency for the FOMC to overestimate the number of hikes they're ultimately able to deliver, I personally wouldn't be surprised to see, instead of zero increases from here in 2019, at least one reflected in the dots. And the last time the Fed was on pause, similar to what we're seeing now, was 2016. And back then, the dots still reflected two additional hikes even though they ended up staying paused for an entire year and hiked in that December. Ben, you made the observation that this pause is like the 2016 pause, and that really is a very big point of contention in the market at this point. I actually come down on the side of suggesting that it's not like the 2016 pause, not from the pricing perspective, but rather just because we're so much closer to the end of the cycle. And I would even say it goes more than that. If you think of the back end of the curve, we've come a long way in the past three years in our understanding of what neutral looks like. Back in March 2016, say when we were having this conversation three years ago, the median long run dot was over 3%. Now it's dropped back 
down to 2.75. And one of the questions we've received in recent weeks in the lead up to the meeting is, are we going to see the long run dot move down even further? And the way that I guess I would answer that question is if we look at the communication since December, a lot of it has been acknowledging that they were closer to neutral than they otherwise might have believed. If you apply that to where their dot point might be, each individual members, it's reasonable to expect a decent downward revision across a whole variety of people. So step one, a lot of people are lowering their neutral estimate. However, just looking at the December read, only four out of the 16 submissions were at 2.5. Everything else was 2.75 or above. So in order to get that median all the way down to 2.5, you'd have to see a very sharp downward revision. Possible, because it would be consistent with the size of the dovish pivot, but a pretty high bar. And further to your point, that would trigger a significant move in the treasury market. In my mind, the repricing of the very front end of the curve so close to effective Fed funds has been the market's acknowledgement that we're very close to the end of the cycle. If, in fact, the long-run terminal is dropped as low as to 250, which, while difficult to achieve, would be not inconsistent with the dovish pivot, I'd expect the five-year to outperform, as is often the case at this point in the cycle. And the realities of a Fed content to say 250 is the end of the cycle versus the 240 effective Fed funds and a world in which there is very little, if not zero, or as we've made the argument before, negative term premium, all of a sudden 10 years anywhere north of 260 become a very, very attractive buying opportunity. And even more than that, if you have neutral by the Fed being forecasted at 250, 30s anywhere north of 3% seem like a really enticing buy, at least from a longer run fundamental perspective. So then the debate becomes, does the curve bull steepen as the front end prices in cuts? Or do we have a moment where a push for duration actually flattens the curve before we see a more material shift in the direction of monetary policy? What's your bias? The way I guess I'd frame that in my head is it depends on if the market's leading the charge. If so, then you could see bull flattening or the Fed's leading the cuts, in which case it would be more on the steepening type. I tend to agree. I think that there will be two orders of the trade. The first trade will be the market leading, which will be incrementally flatter. The second order trade will be the Fed catching up with the data, catching up with investor sentiment, and that's when we more materially price in a rate-cutting cycle. So the curve will go steeper, the curve will go flatter, but not necessarily in that order. Well, on that note, I think we're out of time. Ben and I have to get out of here to sneak to our secret millennial meetings where we talk to each other over avocado toast. Ah, I knew it. In the week ahead, the FOMC comes into focus, and frankly, this will be a very pivotal meeting for the Fed. Our expectations are for a lowering of the dot plot, although it will be very difficult for the committee to move the 2019 dots all the way to zero. This comes despite the fact that the Fed Fund's futures market is currently pricing in a very low probability of any rate hike and, in fact, rate cuts in 2020. The other obvious question is going to be, how does the Fed deal with the balance sheet runoff? 
at this point, it's very consensus that the Fed is going to have to do something to address the fact that the market is anticipating the end of QT. Whether it's a tapering that ends in December of 2019 or one that occurs a bit on the earlier side remains to be seen. Uh, We've talked a fair amount about the composition of the balance sheet and why owning bills might make more sense if the Fed wants to do an operation twist at some point later in the cycle. However, at the end of the day, we really think it's far more about the Fed's willingness to signal to the market that they're happy to be accommodative if and when, and more importantly, for as long as is needed for the economic stumbles to result in a continued expansion. To be fair, that's really this cycle's biggest question is whether or not the Fed shifted to an on-hold stance for monetary policy quickly enough to avert any more material slowdown. Given the way that GDP appears to be shaping up for the first quarter of this year, it's not entirely clear that they responded quickly enough. We've been asked several times recently by clients that given our relatively benign outlook for the treasury market, we still see 10-year yields ending in that 250-255 range for 2019, what is the big trade? And timing the cyclical re-steepening of the curve is really not that exciting. We'll be the first to admit that. There remains a subset of the market looking for another buying opportunity, particularly in the front end of the curve. And we believe that a push back toward that 260, 270 range in twos would be predicated on a bit more hawkish Fed rhetoric. Is that this week's story? Seems unlikely. And the only reason that we say that is because the Fed still needs to deliver something on the balance sheet. And if they deliver a tapering of the balance sheet unwind, that has to be offered in the context of a more dovish or troubling outlook for the overall U.S. economy. We have been struggling with the question about how long can risk assets continue to outperform? Obviously, the biggest move since the beginning of 2019 has been a rebound in domestic equities, although we'll make the argument that that has been largely a function of the shift in Fed policy, uh, certainly not consistent with the data that continues to come in on the lower side of expectations. More to the point, we're left to ponder exactly how much easy monetary policy is being priced into the equity market at this stage and how much higher stocks can actually go. We remain leery of the potential downward pressure on corporate profits in 2019 as a result of the flatness of the curve that really occurred last year, but the impact really has a lag of 16 to 18 months. So this will be the year in which profit compression becomes far more thematic. We've already started to see some of that, obviously, as the year has gotten underway. It's the extent to which that trend is going to extend that leaves us a bit more leery about risk assets. Obviously, Bad news becoming good for the equity market, once again, very thematic as it implies a Fed on hold or potentially shifting into an easier stance sooner rather than later. We'll certainly have more context for this at the end of the week after we hear from the Fed and get a clearer sense of the Fed's reaction function to the recently weaker data. 
The slowdown in the data hasn't been limited to the U.S. We've seen what has happened in China. We have seen what has happened again in Europe. And it is beginning to get even for us a little repetitive to say that global slowing represents the most significant headwind for the Fed. Although at the end of the day, that has been the operative narrative so far in 2019. We do continue to expect that that starts to flow through in a more material way to consumer confidence. And as the realities of the disappointing NFP report continue to be absorbed by the market, no matter how much of that can be excused away by weather, the notion that we've potentially reached a pivot point in the labor market will start to become increasingly topical. While it's unclear if the Fed can deliver a more dovish statement and dot plot than the market is currently expecting, the obvious risk is that they outdove the doves, as it were. We are reminded that a Fed on hold implicitly suggests a degree of caution that should come through in the forward-looking language. In terms of levels to watch, obviously that 254 in 10-year yields remains a near-term target, a lot closer than it was at the end of January, beginning of February, and the realities of pushing through the effective Fed funds at 240, particularly in the belly of the curve, presents its own unique set of risks. After all, that does imply a more aggressive tightening cycle than is currently reflected in Fed funds futures. With the recent treasury auctions so easily absorbed, particularly with a strong response for tins, we continue to bias the outlook on the curve, at least into the Fed meeting, toward the downside. That nine basis point cycle low is an obvious line of resistance. Through there, low single digits become almost a foregone conclusion. We've reached the point in the podcast where we would like to sincerely thank anyone who has managed to listen this far even if it was at one and a half times speed. Yes, I did just learn that that's a thing. As we were recently reminded by an astute listener, the disembodied voice of a strategist can have a real impact on credibility, although it's unclear in which direction. Hmm, just food for thought. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. 
It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. FEMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.